Hello, this is retired Army First Sergeant Mark Flowers, and I would like to welcome you to this episode of the Fixed Bayonets podcast, Military History You Didn't Learn in School. If you're a regular listener to my podcast, you may recall that I've had a lifelong interest in the history of the Marine Corps in World War II. This began many years ago when I was a young Navy hospital corpsman serving with 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines on Okinawa. After I retired from the service in May of 2001, I had a lot more time to devote to my passions and various interests. And one of the things I did was join the U.S. Marine Corps Historical Company, which is a voluntary organization based in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And at the time, the historical company was very focused on the World War II era and keeping the memory of the Marines from that time alive. And so that obviously dovetailed very closely with my interests. And so in 2003, actually in August 2003, I traveled from my home in Oregon to Solomon Island, Maryland for a World War II commemoration on the shore of the Chesapeake Bay. Our focus that year was to recreate an amphibious assault by a reinforced rifle platoon. And so we were plushed up with machine guns, a mortar section, bazookas, BARs. And so we had thousands of rounds of blank ammunition and the whole place had been prepped beforehand by engineers and there were pre-chambers buried in the ground. So it looked like there were mortar rounds landing around us while we were working. And so the, the finale of the event was the destruction of this mocked up bunker that we built the day before. We landed, pushed forward using fire and maneuver, and then we established a firing line near the bunker. And then at the very end, the two flamethrowers moved up on either side of our firing line, and then uh, they they burned the bunker, and then a demolition man came up with a satchel charge and blew the whole thing up. This was a really hot and humid August afternoon, and so we had been working really hard, and we were really sweating. When the flamethrowers opened up, I felt the shirt on my chest begin to dry out from the heat. Now, I'm sure from a safety perspective, it was totally fine, but nevertheless, it was damned hot. And at one point, I thought about getting up and moving further away from the flamethrower. But the problem was there were thousands of people watching us in this presentation, and and it, that would have looked ridiculous. So I glanced over at my buddy Nick, who was busy firing his BAR, and I thought, you know, if Nick can stay here, so can I. And when, and when it was all over, uh, we met back up at the rally point, and Nick and I were talking about it, and I mentioned this to him, and he said, you know, I felt like getting up and moving because it was so hot, but the only reason why I didn't is because you stayed. So I learned more during that afternoon than I could have possibly learned by reading 10 or 15 books. When we were finished, Nick said, you should write about this on your website. And you may recall, if you're one of my regular listeners, that for many years, I wrote a website called worldwar2gyrene.org. And that website's no longer active, but it's still uh, archived on the Wayback Machine where you can find it today. When I got home, the first thing I did was sit down and write this story. Just to give a little background, we're on Iwo Jima, deep into the campaign, and the Marines have suffered horrendous casualties. And the story will tell the rest. Flamethrower Up by Mark Flowers. Iggy sucked in a deep breath and moved out at a slow jog. The heavy tanks on his back threw him off balance. With every out-of-kilter step, he felt on the verge of tipping over. Hoping to make a small target, Iggy tried to stay low, but the flamethrower made an unmistakable outline. With sort of a rhythmic motion, the gasoline in Iggy's tanks gurgled back and forth behind his shoulders. In time to the liquid, 
A little ditty popped into his head. Slosh, slosh, you're all most dead. Slosh, 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 you're all most dead. No, no, couldn't think about that. Anything but that. But the ditty stuck and wouldn't go away. Back at Camp Maui, Sword Nazel had informed Iggy of his assignment to carry the flamethrower. Iggy pleaded not to lug the heavy tanks. Please, Sword, can't one of the new guys carry it? Azel drew himself up to his full height and said, Iggy, you're the biggest Marine in the platoon. It only makes sense for you to fill this billet. Iggy didn't give up and persisted. No way could he lug those gasoline-filled tanks in combat. He, like every Marine, knew it was pretty much a death sentence. Sergeant, I've been in three campaigns. Can't somebody else do it? Azel poked his finger into Iggy's chest. Listen here, Ignatowski. You will carry the flamethrower, and that's the end of it. Now at ease and move out. The menace in Azel's tone squashed any further talk on the subject. So there he was, carrying a 70-pound flamethrower on his back. The jellied gasoline in the two main tanks wasn't so dangerous as long as it wasn't pressurized. If one of them was punctured, you just had to get it off before a spark hit the tank. But once the gasoline was charged with high-pressure nitrogen, all bets were off. At that point, the flamethrower was a bomb strapped to your back. Iggy had seen what happened to flame gunners whose pressurized tanks were hit. At 3,500 PSI, the tank ruptured like a grape, engulfing the Marine and whoever happened to be close in a cloud of fiery death. It was too horrible to think about. That was the trouble. Iggy was obsessed with it. He knew it was only a matter of time before he was at the center of that roiling inferno. But still, each time the call came for flamethrower up, Iggy trudged forward to do what he got paid for. The campaign for Iwo Jima had been grinding forward day after bloody day, leaving a steady outpouring of dead marines to be planted beneath the white crosses. Iggy was the last of the company's original flame gunners who crossed the beach on D-Day. The rest were mostly dead, the lucky ones anyway. New replacements had taken their spots. Many of them were dead too. The objective today was a Japanese-held cave in the jumbled badlands close to Modiyama Airfield Number 2. Iggy moved forward as gunfire echoed all around. Sweat gushed from under his helmet and stung his eyes as he searched for Azel. Spotting the big platoon sergeant in a rugged arroyo, Iggy made a beeline and flopped down to take the weight of the heavy tanks off his shoulders. Azel wore a look of grim determination as he outlined Iggy's mission. We got a Jap cave mouth up ahead in the draw. Using a small stick, he sketched out the details in the dirt. I need you to skirt up around the side of these rocks right here. He jabbed the stick in the ground for emphasis and link up with 3rd Squad. Sergeant Kearns will take you up where they need you. Iggy looked down at the rough sketch on the ground. He asked, Who's coming with me, Sergeant? Nobody. We ain't got enough Marines. You'll be by yourself until you make the link up with Kearns. Swallowing hard... Iggy tried to force the courage he didn't feel. Well, I guess that's how it is. Like a turtle on its back, he rocked himself into a kneeling position, then stood ponderously. The flame tanks pressed down on his shoulders as he tightened the straps. He said, Hey, Sergeant, can I ask you a question? Izell looked intently at Iggy. Yeah. What is it? When we get out of this, can I get a 72? Smiling, Izell replied, Hell yeah, Iggy. We'll all get drunk as skunks. We sure will. He turned and began moving out toward First Squad's area. He looked back at Iggy for a moment. You take care of yourself, you hear? I will, Sergeant. You too, Iggy replied. He didn't know it right then, but that was the last time he'd ever see Azel alive. Iggy headed toward Third Squad's area. He heard the crack of M1 rifles and the slow stutter of BARs 
As he got closer, he could also hear the return fire from the enemy. A Nambu machine gun was firing with its distinctive woodpecker, taka, taka, taka. From the way they were shooting, the Japs must have had plenty of ammo. Staying low, Iggy hugged the side of the arroyo and searched for the draw where he was supposed to meet Sergeant Kearns, the squad leader. Kearns was waiting for Iggy right at the corner of the draw in a covered position. He waved the flame gunner over and quickly but efficiently sketched out his plan. Kearns said, Okay, this fucking machine gun has us pinned down hard. I have a fire team on the left and one on the right. You're going right. We have an engineer with satchel charges. You know the drill. We'll lay down suppression. You torch him and the satchel charge will seal up their position. Moving out low, Kearns looked back and said, Follow me. Without thinking, Iggy took up slack behind the raw bone squad leader, keeping a five-yard interval. In that slight depression, they inched forward through the blasted landscape. The Japanese machine gun was close, and streams of bullets sleeted back and forth like rain above their heads. Little chunks of dirt and rock cascaded down from bullets striking close by. Kearns led Iggy up behind some riflemen who were firing steadily. They pulled up behind a dusty rock formation where the cave mouth was clearly visible. The noise was deafening and Kearns had to lean close to give his final orders. This is the last covered spot. That gun. Kearns gestured to the enemy position. It set a ways back in the cave. You'll need to get right up on it to get the job done. We'll give you covering fire. Now move out. Iggy felt sick to his stomach, but he began inching forward hugging the edge of the draw for everything he was worth. The volume of marine fire increased and he felt bullets snapping right past his head. Suddenly, he realized he'd forgotten to have Sergeant Kearns charge his flame tanks. Fuck, 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 he whispered as he stopped to fumble around for the valve behind his right hip. He grasped the fitting and cranked hard. He felt high-pressure nitrogen whooshing into the main tanks. Okay. This is it, he thought. Moving forward, Iggy saw the muzzle blast from the hidden machine gun as it kicked up dirt at the cave mouth. Good. The Japs still didn't realize he was coming. He glanced back at Kern's position. Camouflage helmets stuck out from the rocks, and ejected shell casings glinted in the sunlight as they flew through the air. Funny. Until right then, Iggy hadn't realized how bright the sun was. Iggy could see Kern's back there and realized he was waving and yelling something. Unable to hear the words, Iggy guessed from the gestures that Kearns wanted him to get closer. He resumed his crawl, moving like an inchworm. The rocks tore at his knees and hands, leaving a little trail of blood-tinged dust to mark his path. Finally, after an eternity of minutes, Iggy reached a good spot to do his work. He held the pistol grips of his flame gun tight and aimed the nozzle at the cave mouth. His hand shaking and damp, he took a deep breath and launched a wet shot against the cave. Guessing the range at about 20 yards, he watched as the gasoline mixture splashed against the rocks, making a slick of sticky gel. Suddenly, a long burst of Japanese bullets tore past Iggy, slamming into the rugged ground just to his left. Rock slivers pelted him, and he felt sharp cuts as some drew blood. Ricochets twanged all around, clearly audible above the wall of noise in the little draw. Iggy pulled both triggers on his flame gun, and time stood still. A sheet of pure fire roiled from the muzzle, igniting the slick at the cave mouth. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, stop, he recited silently, and released the triggers. His face felt tight and hot from the blast furnace heat. The front of his dungarees was dry and crackly, though he was sweating heavily. A sheet of flame burned at the cave mouth and filthy black smoke rose into the sky. And still, the Japanese machine gun fired desperately as its crew tried to ward off the inevitable. Iggy caught a glimpse of the engineer crawling up on the other side of the cave with a heavy satchel charge. The Marine yelled across, You torch it while I throw my charge, but wait for my signal. 
The engineer screamed, Now! Again, Iggy pressed his triggers and launched a stream of hell into the cave mouth. No way could anybody survive that. No way. The engineer ran in a tight crouch right up to the side of the cave. In that moment, the draw fell silent. Only the crackling flames were audible. Heaving the charge into the cave, the engineer turned and took off like a striped-ass gazelle. He threw himself down behind some rocks that provided dubious cover. Iggy dove for cover, too, making another of his little deals with God. Please, Lord, if I survive this, I'll be good from now on. The satchel charge detonated with a heavy kerwump. Iggy looked up as the cave mouth collapsed, belching smoke and dust. Rocks and pebbles cascaded down. Ears ringing, he stood up and Sergeant Kearns loped up to him. Taking his helmet off, Kearns said, Good job, Big Natowski. How much fuel you got left in your tanks? Iggy replied shakily, uh, about, about three shots, maybe? Giving the hand signal to assemble, Kearns shouted, Third squad, rally on me. Then to Iggy, Okay, you stick with us. There's another Jap position up ahead we gotta take. Then you can go back and top off your tanks. The squad clustered around Kearns as he sketched out the plan for the next position. Once all hands knew the deal, Kearns said, Okay, fellas, move out and stay low. Iggy took up his place in the formation. The fuel in his tanks gurgled. He tried not to listen to the ditty in his head, but the words stuck and wouldn't go away. The end. In closing, I would like to make a couple of points. I use the word Jap in a few places in the story in reference to the Japanese defenders of Iwo Jima. I would like to state categorically that this does not reflect how I feel about the Japanese army or the Japanese people. I've served with Japanese soldiers on several occasions in exercises, and I've spent quite a bit of time in Japan, and it's a country I love. In the story, I was trying to recreate the atmosphere of a specific time and place. And uh, when you're writing about World War II, especially in regards to uh, the people that lived it, it's impossible to separate race and war. Second, I would like to uh, say that none of the characters in my story are based on specific real people. I certainly had uh, pictures of people that I knew in mind when I wrote the story, but especially the main character Ignatowski wasn't based on a real person. And I'm not sure how I came up with that name, but I really like the way it sounded, and I also like the way that the nickname and the last name fit together. So I posted this on my website in late 2003, and I started getting emails from people who had read the book Flags of Our Fathers, which was a nonfiction work about the Iwo Jima flag raising, written by the son of one of the flag raisers. And they wondered if my character, Ignatowski, was the same Marine as a real-life character that was in the book. And of course, I told people that know my Ignatowski and that one were not the same people. I hope you've enjoyed this short story that I wrote, and I appreciate you listening here on the Fixed Bayonets podcast, Military History You Didn't Learn in School. To learn more about what I do, please visit my website at fixedbayonets.us, and you can also find me on Facebook. And until the next time, this is retired First Sergeant Mark Flowers signing off.
He, like every Marine, knew it was pretty much a death sentence. Sergeant, I've been in three campaigns. Can't somebody else do it? Izzel poked his finger into Iggy's chest. Listen here, Ignatowski. You will carry the flamethrower, and that's the end of it. Now at ease and move out. The menace in Izzel's tone squashed any further talk on the subject. So there he was, carrying a 70-pound flamethrower on his back. The jellied gasoline in the two main tanks wasn't so dangerous as long as it wasn't pressurized. If one of them was punctured, you just had to get it off before a spark hit the tank. But once the gasoline was charged with high-pressure nitrogen, all bets were off. At that point, the flamethrower was a bomb strapped to your back. Iggy had seen what happened to flame gunners whose pressurized tanks were hit. At 3,500 PSI, the tank ruptured like a grape, engulfing the Marine and whoever happened to be close in a cloud of fiery death. It was too horrible to think about. That was the trouble. Iggy was obsessed with it. He knew it was only a matter of time before he was at the center of that roiling inferno. But still, each time the call came for flamethrower up, Iggy trudged forward to do what he got paid for. The campaign for Iwo Jima had been grinding forward day after bloody day, leaving a steady outpouring of dead Marines to be planted beneath the white crosses. Iggy was the last of the company's original flame gunners who crossed the beach on D-Day. The rest were mostly dead. The lucky ones, anyway. New replacements had taken their spots. Many of them were dead, too. The objective today was a Japanese-held cave in the jumbled badlands close to Modiyama Airfield No. 2. Iggy moved forward as gunfire echoed all around. Sweat gushed from under his helmet and stung his eyes as he searched for Azel. Spotting the big platoon sergeant in a rugged arroyo, Iggy made a beeline and flopped down to take the weight of the heavy tanks off his shoulders. Izell wore a look of grim determination as he outlined Iggy's mission. We got a Jap cave mouth up ahead in the draw. Using a small stick, he sketched out the details in the dirt. I need you to skirt up around the side of these rocks right here. He jabbed the stick in the ground for emphasis and link up with third squad. Sergeant Kearns will take you up where they need you. Iggy looked down at the rough sketch on the ground. He asked, Who's coming with me, Sergeant? Nobody. We ain't got enough Marines. You'll be by yourself until you make the link up with Kearns. Swallowing hard, Iggy tried to force the courage he didn't feel. Well, I guess that's how it is. Like a turtle on its back, he rocked himself into a kneeling position, then stood ponderously. The flame tanks pressed down on his shoulders as he tightened the straps. He said, Hey, Sergeant, can I ask you a question? Izell looked intently at Iggy. Yeah. What is it? When we get out of this, can I get a 72? Smiling, Izell replied, Hell yeah, Iggy. We'll all get drunk as skunks. We sure will. He turned and began moving out toward First Squad's area. He looked back at Iggy for a moment. You take care of yourself, you hear? I will, Sergeant. You too, Iggy replied. He didn't know it right then. But that was the last time he'd ever see Azel alive. Iggy headed toward 3rd Squad's area. He heard the crack of M1 rifles and the slow stutter of BARs. As he got closer, he could also hear the return fire from the enemy. A Nambu machine gun was firing with its distinctive woodpecker, taka, taka, taka. From the way they were shooting, the Japs must have had plenty of ammo. Staying low, 
Iggy hugged the side of the arroyo and searched for the draw where he was supposed to meet Sergeant Kearns, the squad leader. Kearns was waiting for Iggy right at the corner of the draw in a covered position. He waved the flame gunner over and quickly but efficiently sketched out his plan. Kearns said, Okay, this fucking machine gun has us pinned down hard. I have a fire team on the left and one on the right. You're going right. We have an engineer with satchel charges. You know the drill. We'll lay down suppression. You torch him, and the satchel charge will seal up their position. Moving out low, Kearns looked back and said, Follow me. Without thinking, Iggy took up slack behind the raw bone squad leader, keeping a five-yard interval. In that slight depression, they inched forward through the blasted landscape. The Japanese machine gun was close, and streams of bullets sleeted back and forth like rain above their heads. Little chunks of dirt and rock cascaded down from bullets striking close by. Kearns led Iggy up behind some riflemen who were firing steadily. They pulled up behind a dusty rock formation where the cave mouth was clearly visible. The noise was deafening and Kearns had to lean close to give his final orders. This is the last covered spot. That gun. Kearns gestured to the enemy position. It set a ways back in the cave. You'll need to get right up on it to get the job done. We'll give you covering fire. Now move out. Iggy felt sick to his stomach but he began inching forward, hugging the edge of the draw for everything he was worth. The volume of marine fire increased and he felt bullets snapping right past his head. Suddenly, he realized he'd forgotten to have Sergeant Kearns charge his flame tanks. Fuck, 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 he whispered as he stopped to fumble around for the valve behind his right hip. He grasped the fitting and cranked hard. He felt high-pressure nitrogen whooshing into the main tanks. Okay, this is it, he thought. Moving forward, Iggy saw the muzzle blast from the hidden machine gun as it kicked up dirt at the cave mouth. Good. The Japs still didn't realize he was coming. He glanced back at Kern's position. Camouflage helmets stuck out from the rocks, and ejected shell casings glinted in the sunlight as they flew through the air. Funny. Until right then, Iggy hadn't realized how bright the sun was. Iggy could see Kern's back there and realized he was waving and yelling something. Unable to hear the words, Iggy guessed from the gestures that Kearns wanted him to get closer. He resumed his crawl, moving like an inchworm. The rocks tore at his knees and hands, leaving a little trail of blood-tinged dust to mark his path. Finally, after an eternity of minutes, Iggy reached a good spot to do his work. He held the pistol grips of his flame gun tight and aimed the nozzle at the cave mouth. His hands shaking and damp, he took a deep breath and launched a wet shot against the cave. Guessing the range at about 20 yards, he watched as the gasoline mixture splashed against the rocks, making a slick of sticky gel. Suddenly, a long burst of Japanese bullets tore past Iggy, slamming into the rugged ground just to his left. Rock slivers pelted him and he felt sharp cuts as some drew blood. Ricochets twanged all around, clearly audible above the wall of noise in the little draw. Iggy pulled both triggers on his flame gun and time stood still. A sheet of pure fire roiled from the muzzle, igniting the slick at the cave mouth. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, stop, he recited silently and released the triggers. His face felt tight and hot from the blast furnace heat. The front of his dungarees was dry and crackly, though he was sweating heavily. A sheet of flame burned at the cave mouth and filthy black smoke rose into the sky. 
and still the Japanese machine gun fired desperately as its crew tried to ward off the inevitable. Iggy caught a glimpse of the engineer crawling up on the other side of the cave with a heavy satchel charge. The Marine yelled across, You torch it while I throw my charge, but wait for my signal. The engineer screamed, Now! Again, Iggy pressed his triggers and launched a stream of hell into the cave mouth. No way could anybody survive that. No way. The engineer ran in a tight crouch right up to the side of the cave. In that moment, the draw fell silent. Only the crackling flames were audible. Heaving the charge into the cave, the engineer turned and took off like a striped-assed gazelle. He threw himself down behind some rocks that provided dubious cover. Iggy dove for cover, too, making another of his little deals with God. Please, Lord, if I survive this, I'll be good from now on. The satchel charge detonated with a heavy kerwump. Iggy looked up as the cave mouth collapsed, belching smoke and dust. Rocks and pebbles cascaded down. Ears ringing, he stood up and Sergeant Kearns loped up to him. Taking his helmet off, Kearns said, Good job, Big Natowski. How much fuel you got left in your tanks? Iggy replied shakily, uh, About three shots, maybe? Giving the hand signal to assemble, Kearns shouted, Third squad, rally on me. Then to Iggy, Okay, you stick with us. There's another Jap position up ahead we gotta take. Then you can go back and top off your tanks. The squad clustered around Kearns as he sketched out the plan for the next position. Once all hands knew the deal, Kearns said, Okay, fellas, move out and stay low. Iggy took up his place in the formation. The fuel in his tanks gurgled. He tried not to listen to the ditty in his head, but the words stuck and wouldn't go away. The end. In closing, I would like to make a couple of points. I use the word Jap in a few places in the story in reference to the Japanese defenders of Iwo Jima. I would like to state categorically that this does not reflect how I feel about the Japanese army or the Japanese people. I've served with Japanese soldiers on several occasions in exercises, and I've spent quite a bit of time in Japan, and it's a country I love. In the story, I was trying to recreate the atmosphere of a specific time and place. And uh, when you're writing about World War II, especially in regards to uh, the people that lived it, it's impossible to separate race and war. Second, I would like to uh, say that none of the characters in my story are based on specific real people. I certainly had uh, pictures of people that I knew in mind when I wrote the story, but especially the main character Ignatowski, 